Welcome to Policy Outsider. I'm Alex Morse. Do administrative burdens and social barriers limit enrollment for Medicaid and other social welfare programs? Does stigma play a role in any of this? As we'll find out, states can reduce burdens to increase Medicaid take-up and provide adequate health care to a greater number of people, but will increasing enrollment also increase state expenditures, or will it actually save money? On today's episode, we have University at Albany professor Ashley Fox to discuss her recent paper that examines some of these questions. We will highlight how some states are addressing Medicaid enrollment policies and discuss what implications administrative easing can have for both the individual and for the government. Coming up next. Hello, Professor Fox. Thank you for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Full disclosure, I'm working from home today. My kids are home on February break. So if you hear any noises in the background, it's probably them. And I apologize in advance. Oh, not a problem. Totally understand it in this world today. So I'm with Professor Ashley Fox, who teaches at the University at Albany's Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy. And you specialize in policy analysis with a focus on comparative health policies and the effects social policies have on health outcomes. Now, full disclosure, Rockefeller College is my alma mater, but you and I never crossed paths uh, while I was there. So I'm glad we get to work together now, especially since I won't be graded on anything. (laughs) So uh, again, thank you for joining. So we have you here to talk about these health policies, specifically Medicaid and enrollment. You recently published a paper in the Public Administration Review titled Administrative Easing, Rule Reduction and Medicaid Enrollment. Uh, Medicaid is a federal social welfare program that provides health care to millions of Americans, including the low-income adults uh, and families, pregnant women, the elderly, people with disabilities. And although it's a federal program, it's administered by the states, right? And so state administration makes for a unique opportunity to measure the different policies and approaches against each other. Let's start there with a brief comparative analysis. Uh, How does one enroll in Medicaid and how can that change between states? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I think a lot of this has really changed since the introduction of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, The most typical way that somebody would enroll now would probably be to go on to um, the exchanges, uh, which are you know either the state-specific exchange, which is like an online marketplace where you go and apply for insurance. You can check if you're eligible for subsidies or if you're eligible for Medicaid. Um, and uh, there's the federal exchanges in each state also has their own exchange. So really, since the introduction of the Affordable Care Act, that is probably where most people uh, go to find out if they're eligible for Medicaid. But prior to the Affordable Care Act, it was much harder to find out if someone was eligible. Um, Usually you would probably go to a a provider or maybe you are part of, you, you get assistance from other programs and you might find out that you're eligible, but there was no really direct way 
to find out if you were eligible prior to the Affordable Care Act. And it varies a lot by state. In some state, uh, eligibility is determined at the county level. So you might go to a county office uh, to find out your eligibility status. Um, so I think the Affordable Care Act has really made it a lot easier for people to learn about their eligibility for Medicaid um, and in ways that have really had significant ripple effects. Let's start with two states, maybe New York versus what state has a as a more burdensome administrative process? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, again, I think since the Affordable Care Act, states have really equalized in that sense. Um, but, you know, surprisingly, uh, New York is one of these states that tends to administer uh, public assistance at the county level. So actually, New York probably was a little bit more complicated in some ways that, than other states that uh, where eligibility is not necessarily determined at a county level or um, where you don't ha have a county uh, office that you would have to interact with. Um, so Surprisingly, some states, for instance, like Utah, um, has now implemented what they call an integrated eligibility system uh, that actually integrates eligibility, not just for Medicaid, but for other programs uh, like TANF, SNAP, and child care subsidies. And so in Utah, you can actually, uh, while you're finding out if you're eligible for Medicaid, potentially find out if you're eligible for these other programs. Now, that's since the Affordable Care Act. Um, I'm not sure exactly what they did before the Affordable Care Act, but New York actually doesn't have an integrated eligibility system. And part of that is because the eligibility rules are just so different in New York for each of these programs that I know that there have been some efforts to try to integrate eligibility, but it, it's been looked at and sort of determined that it's too hard to integrate the eligibility across these different programs because they have such different rules. So yeah, let's, let's focus on that eligibility component. It varies greatly between different states. So these are political choices and administrative choices. Why, is, why do states have different eligibility standards? Yeah, I mean, that's um, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, it may be better left to the people that actually craft the policies to really you know, answer why that is. But I think there's an increasing recognition uh, of the ways that administrative burdens uh, do reduce uptake um, in, in program participation. And so states are increasingly moving in the direction of trying to simplify their en enrollment processes. And some of it really dates back historically to welfare reform, honestly, in 1996. Uh, so previously under the AFDC program, uh, which is was aid for families with dependent children, eligibility for different programs was more integrated. So if you were eligible for AFDC, you were often eligible for food assistance and for Medicaid. Then with welfare reform, the rules became so different that uh, that different states went in very different directions in terms of how people would get enrolled with different programs, which uh, greatly increased the amount of administrative burdens to signing up for them. Uh, but I think now states are starting to recognize the problems that that's caused and how that's affecting uh, people's uptake of the programs and are moving in the direction of trying to simplify rules, at least for Medicaid and um, perhaps for SNAP as well. With regard to welfare reform, you said it was 1996. I guess that provides a unique opportunity to see what changes states made and how that had an effect on health outcomes. And so we're talking about the administrative burdens being increased in those 90s years. 
how has that had an effect on Medicaid enrollment specifically? What is the gap between those who are legally entitled to benefits versus who are actually receiving those benefits? Previously, like before the Affordable Care, the Affordable Care Act actually made it a lot easier to figure out who is eligible uh, for Medicaid and to sort of figure out what, what is the gap between the people that would be eligible and the people that actually enroll in Medicaid. But prior to the Affordable Care Act, it was very difficult to even know how many people were eligible for Medicaid. Uh, you would think that policymakers would have uh, like some target that they know like this proportion of my population is in fact eligible for Medicaid and that they would be working towards trying to, you know, get to that maximum number of people. But in reality, a lot of people, uh, we don't really actually know how many people are eligible for Medicaid, um, at least historically, uh, because there's so many complicated things to consider. It's not just about income. It's about, uh, you know, there might be an asset test. Uh, even thinking about what counts as income can be very complicated. Does child support count? What kinds of other benefits might count against your income? So determining eligibility before the Affordable Care Act was, was very complicated. Uh, the Affordable Care Act moved towards this system of using modified adjusted gross income and mostly uh, got rid of the asset test uh, in, in almost all instances. So uh, it became much easier to figure out how many people were actually eligible for Medicaid. And so now there are some attempts at estimating uh, what proportion of the population uh, is is eligible, and then what proportion is actually enrolled? And actually, what studies have found is that there's pretty high enrollment rates now in Medicaid. So in 2016, 94% um, of kids that were eligible for Medicaid were enrolled, and oh, wow. per, yeah, it's very high. And 80% um, of parents who were eligible were enrolled. Um, now, is but, that uniform? I'm sorry. Is that, is that uniform across states or are some states driving those higher figures? Yeah, there's definitely variation across states. Um, and that variation can be further explored to see what exactly are driving those differences. But we only have estimates for two, two years um, uh, on those eligibility, like how many people are actually um, that are eligible are enrolled. Uh, and so the Urban Institute has created these estimates based on sort of projecting what proportion of the population based on the different characteristics that um, determine eligibility, uh, you know, what proportion actually is on the program who are eligible. Uh, but that's only been done for two years currently. So it's difficult to um, do really advanced studies that can really determine what, what the factors are that vary across states that determine that. Yeah. So it's too early to draw any conclusions about these policies. Any really solid conclusions, I would say, yes. Okay. So changing gears just a little bit, why is Medicaid take up so important? Why do we want to reduce administrative burden? Yeah, I mean, I think there's different perspectives on this. Um, you know, I, I tend to take the perspective that our benefits are a legal entitlement. And, you know, insofar as people who are legally entitled to the benefit are not uh, using it or don't have access to it, or um, there's a concept known as a sort of bureaucratic 
disentitlement. So that are being, you know, disentitled just based on these bureaucratic procedures that you know, we should be uh, concerned about it from a sort of normative perspective that people aren't able to claim uh, what is sort of legally owed to them. But I think there are other pragmatic reasons for being concerned as well. Um, so, of course, if people aren't uh, on Medicaid who um, are otherwise eligible for Medicaid, they may not get the health care that they need. They may develop costly conditions and end up in the emergency room um, in ways that could have been prevented and end up passing on costs anyway, since they weren't enrolled. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons, uh, both from a normative and a health perspective, to, to get more people enrolled. That's interesting. This might be a side point. Are there any studies based on the, the passed on costs of someone not enrolled in healthcare versus if they were enrolled in Medicaid? Do we know what those differences may be? Do they even out? Or is one worse than the other? Um, there are studies. Um, I have, I don't, I, off the top of my head, couldn't tell you an exact number um, without doing further research, but generally, uh, people tend to believe that the costs are larger uh, because, uh, you know, if people are continuously have healthcare coverage, they can go and get preventive checkups. And right. generally that prevents the much more costly things that end up coming down the line. Uh, so yes, I think there there's pretty good evidence that uh, it costs more not to insure people than to insure them. Um, but I can't cite a specific amount right off the top of my head. Sticking on higher costs, what does higher take up of Medicaid look like to states? If more people are enrolled in Medicaid, will that cost states more money? Yeah, that's that's a, a good question. It's a, it's a complicated question to answer um, because it, of the way that that Medicaid is funded in part. Um, so Medicaid funding is quite complex. Uh, so, for instance, Medicaid is largely paid for by what's known as the, the FMAP, the Federal Medical Assistance Percentage. So that's the proportion that the federal government contributes to Medicaid programs. Um, so this can get very wonky very fast, but the FMAP is calculated uh, from a formula that takes into account the average per capita income of a state relative to the national average. Uh, and then states are responsible for the amount that's above that that FMAP. So in a sense, I think in theory, yes, you know, states are responsible for uh, if, if there is greater uptake, for instance, of Medicaid than what they were anticipating or, um, you know, in a sense, by keeping uptake lower, states would incur less of the cost of uh, those additional participants. Um, so I think there, there can be incentives to keep um, enrollments lower, whether how much that actually factors into what states are doing, um, you know, you'd have to ask probably the, the states themselves. And so switching from the fiscal cost to the social cost, what are the ramifications of administrative burden on the individual? How are we defining administrative burden here? What does that mean for the person's self-worth, their social efficacy? How does that play out in real life? Yeah, so um, scholars of administrative burden talk about largely sort of three types of costs. Um, so one, one is learning costs that has to do with the, the costs associated with learning about whether you're eligible for a program. And I think even this like frame framing of it as a cost, right? It, it implies that there are certain costs to the individual 
involved in, you know, trying to determine whether or not they are actually eligible for a program. Then they talk about compliance costs. So assuming that you actually get on a program, uh, there's additional burdens you may encounter in trying to stay enrolled in that program or things you might have to do to continue to prove your eligibility. Um, that can also impose a, a considerable amount of costs on individuals in terms of their time, in terms of their effort, their stress levels. Uh, but the third category is probably the most relevant to what you're talking about, which is psychological costs. So, you know, there's psychological costs to applying for programs, staying enrolled in programs, um, and just the very fact of it being a, a safety net or a welfare program often confers a certain amount of stigma upon trying to access those benefits. Um, but, you know, the process can be more or less stigmatizing depending on how uh, the, the rules are actually structured. And so I think another element of the Affordable Care Act and being able to apply online and on the exchanges that has helped reduce some of that psychological burden um, is uh, the ability to just sort of go online and check your status and not have to necessarily go to a welfare office or, um, you know, have it be, in fact, a lot of people going on the exchanges, they may not even know that they're looking to see if they're eligible for Medicaid. They're just checking if they're eligible for a subsidy, perhaps, or what health insurance plan they might be eligible for, and then they can find out that they're eligible for Medicaid. Uh, and so that really also significantly changed how people were thinking about the program itself and how they come to find out that they're eligible, I think in a way that also reduces some of those psychological costs. Yeah, I remember learning in grad school that some benefits for social welfare programs are made purposefully burdensome or purposely undesirable. So for example, uh, for food assistance, you'd have a small office with a line outside the door and it would take you an hour or maybe longer to receive food or benefits. And so it was it was a political decision or maybe an administrative decision to make these programs uh, appear as undesirable. You used the word stigma earlier, but we were talking about how we want to reduce psychological burden in that sense. Uh, what other reductions in administrative or what other administrative easing has gone on uh, since the ACA? So I, I think that that's one of the big ones that the implementation of the exchanges in general um, was really helpful, but also sorry, there is the implementation of what's known as real-time eligibility uh, that was also kind of built into the exchanges. And what this allowed people to do was to, first of all, use self-attestation of income, meaning that you basically just self-report what your income is. Uh, and then the, um, that information goes into the system. And then the system can actually just check based on your social security number, based on like other uh, administrative records that the state has, uh, what your actual income is. So uh, you can use existing electronic resources to verify people's self-attested income and then get back to them within 24 hours to say, okay, yes, you are in fact eligible for Medicaid or to flag right away, like you may be eligible for Medicaid. Um, and so that really helps to engage people and um, let them know quickly that they could sign up for, for, for Medicaid. Uh, so that we found to be actually very impactful on um, up, uptake of, of Medicaid. Um, some other rules that predated the Affordable Care Act and actually were part of uh, the CHIPRA reauthorization, which is the Children's Health Insurance Program reauthorization, 
um, were some different measures that states had implemented with the explicit aim of really making it easier to find out that you're eligible. So one of those was presumptive eligibility, which authorizes qualified entities. So things like healthcare providers, community-based organizations, schools, um, it enables them to screen for Medicaid and CHIP eligibility and then immediately enroll people who appear to be eligible. And so then uh, that information goes to whoever is handling Medicaid in the state, and they can determine whether or not that person really is eligible, but at least they've been flagged as somebody who's potentially eligible and, and automatically enrolled. And similarly, express lane eligibility enables states to use data on program eligibility from other public benefit programs to determine whether or not children are eligible for Medicaid and CHIP. And often when it's determined that a child's eligible, that also can then sort of signal uh, that adults might be eligible as well. So there's also this kind of welcome mat effect that people have found that if you find out that your child's eligible, you might look into whether you're eligible or it can be it can be determined if you in fact are eligible. So I think you know what these have in common is really that they're putting the onus more on the state to uh, to verify whether or not somebody is ineligible as opposed to putting the the onus on the individual to seek out and prove that they in fact are eligible. So it's sort of a you know innocent until proven guilty standard. Sure. Now, the Medicaid expansion was a federal rule that was part of the Affordable Care Act, but some of these initiatives done by states to increase Medicaid have been voluntary, right? Some are voluntary, but uh, there there were quite a few that were um, mandated by the Affordable Care Act. Uh, But yeah, so in terms of some of the more impactful ones that we found, uh, real-time eligibility, not all states adopted that. um, And some states have done a better job implementing real-time eligibility than other states. And uh, some of the use of um, presumptive eligibility and express lane eligibility still varies by states. And um, some of the different uh, ways that people can renew their coverage continues to vary by states. And that can also be very impactful. So how frequently you have to renew coverage, um, what that process looks like, um, that can also uh, promote what, what people refer to as churn in the program. So people kind of cycling on and off the program. Are there any other types of initiative states can employ to increase enrollment? Something that you found through your research that's been the most successful model that hasn't been done by a majority of states? I mean, I definitely think that the real-time eligibility is a very promising way that states can, for the states that have not yet implemented real-time eligibility or are not maybe using it to its full capacity, um, I, you know, that was one of the ones that we found was the most impactful um, on uptake. And also, I would say uh, there's been some other research that's looked at things like making uh, the application available on a smartphone as opposed to just on a web page. So making it, you know, like an app sort of that people can use so you can save the information. We didn't actually find in our study that that made a huge impact, but other studies that have done more like case studies of different states that have implemented these approaches um, find that 
at minimum, people really like to apply that way. So most people are not applying on a, a laptop. You know, they're applying on a smartphone. Of course, this varies by different groups of people. So younger people tend to be more um, comfortable with applying online, more comfortable with using their phones to apply for things. Um, older adults uh, tend to still like to be able to go to an office to apply. So I think that's another lesson is that having more different ways for people to apply is what's really important and not necessarily, you know, entirely moving away from any kind of ability to apply in person or apply on the phone and only going to online because that could also burden different types of groups who maybe um, aren't as good at technology or could benefit from more of that face-to-face -face interaction. On the other hand, uh, though people who are, you know, disabled or have children or have um, other kinds of physical or other limitations may find it very challenging to have to physically go somewhere. So that ability to apply online or apply on a smartphone can make all the difference. So I think having more and varied different ways to discover that people are eligible and, and let them know that they're eligible um, and then just making it easier for them to enroll, um, especially without having to produce, at least at the outset, as much um, documentation uh, of their income and other types of things and relying more on these um, automated eligibility systems that check people's income against uh, public records can really help facilitate people getting enrolled. I like what you said about the various approaches being more beneficial to different groups of people, and especially against the backdrop of the COVID recovery and the fallout from the pandemic. To your point earlier about why Medicaid is important for health prevention, for maintaining health costs, and just making sure that we have a healthy populace, it makes sense that we'd want to try to reach as many people as efficiently and effectively as we can. So with that, I do, I do have a number oh, of, of the, the people that um, be, that went, became, came on to Medicaid during the pandemic. So um, uh, it right, right. Well, as of July of 2021, 83 million people were enrolled in Medicaid. And that's an increase of 8 million from before the pandemic. Wow. Um, so there was a, a big increase of people taking up Medicaid during the pandemic. And I think um, I mean, I don't know, but I suspect that that number would have been smaller if we, if it hadn't, if the ACA hadn't um, made it easier to check and find out if you're eligible. What I also find interesting is that these lessons don't have to be strictly limited to Medicaid. They can be applied across different social welfare programs. So what other programs exist that can take a page out of these administrative easings? Yeah, so um, I, I think other programs are also taking various initiatives to try to uh, make it easier for people to enroll. Um, SNAP, in particular, has um, been moving in the direction of That's administrative the supplemental nutrition assistance yes, program. Sorry, so many acronyms. Yes, uh, so Alphabet SNAP is soup. Right. SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Uh, so it's a basically food assistance, uh, and in some ways, it all, it has easier eligibility rules, I guess. It, 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 it's easier to know whether you're eligible. It's just a flat 130% of the federal poverty level for everybody. But there are different things that states do that make it easier or harder to, you know, beyond income to really determine whether or not you're eligible. So states have been moving in the direction of removing asset tests, for instance, um, so that you don't have to 
prove that you don't have a certain amount of assets anymore in, in a number of states. Some states used to do fingerprinting, for instance, um, and that has been removed in many states to make it less stigmatizing. Um, and in fact, you know, SNAP itself used to be referred to as food stamps, and people would have to physically go in and they would have these physical stamps that they would use to pay for food, which was also very stigmatizing and imposed a lot of psychological burden on people. Um, and so increasingly, uh, states have moved towards using EBT cards, um, electronic benefit transfer cards, which basically look like a, a credit card. So when people go up and pay, it's not like obvious that they're um, using food assistance um, money to, to pay for their, for their food. So um, I think SNAP is also moving in the direction of uh, reducing some of the burdens associated with signing up um, and also some of the psychological burdens associated with the program. Um, and I, during the pandemic, um, I think there was a lot of policy learning as well from these experiences in terms of, for instance, um, uh, the way that the stimulus checks were uh, delivered to people. Uh, so I think there was a recognition that if we need to have people apply to, you know, and say, hey, we need money, um, that that would be such a, a costly endeavor on so many fronts. Uh, so instead, what the government did was they just looked at people's tax returns uh, and determined based on that whether they met the very basic income threshold that was determined. And then they automatically deposited the stimulus checks into people's accounts for people who they had a, an account on record. For people who don't have an account on record, there was um, some additional delays involved because they had to actually track people down, mail a check to their address. Um, but I think that's an example of how uh, we can use a lot of the uh, electronic systems that we have and the information that we have to simplify these procedures and make sure that people are really getting benefits in a timely manner. It'll be interesting to see what research comes out of this. I'm I'm sure that there's teams of researchers across the country measuring the the different outcomes, health outcomes, or social welfare programs uh, based on these changes in rules. Now, what about what opponents might say? They might say that there's fraud engaged in these social welfare programs. That's often what you might hear uh, from punditry or from others, and so. What are the current levels of fraud in Medicaid or SNAP or other programs? And what is the risk that we might increase the levels of fraud? Yeah, so I think this is a really important point. Um, and I can't give a specific number to the amount of fraud, but what I can say is that studies have definitely found that uh, fraud is not nearly as much as we might think it would be. Uh, it's a very small percentage of cases, um, but that in the effort to detect and deter fraud that states have enacted a lot of policies that have also really discouraged people who are otherwise eligible from signing up. So the way that I talk about this in, in my paper is I, I talk about this in terms of um, what we often refer to as type one error and type two error. So type one error in this instance would be accident accidentally giving benefits to people who are in fact not eligible um, for the program. So that would be fraud. So like type one error is basically fraud. Whereas type two error is tacitly denying eligible participants 
who are either unable or unwilling to uh, submit the amount of paperwork that they would need to to prove their eligibility. So in our effort to deter this type one error, you know, this fraud, um, we've actually incurred a lot more type two errors. So missing people who would otherwise be eligible because we've made the rules so complicated and so difficult. Um, so I think there is a trade-off uh, between those two that policymakers need to be conscious of. Uh, also, I, I think another argument that really both sides, uh, or you know, like if you think about, for instance, um, why some people are advocating moving towards a universal basic income, uh, you often get people that are more conservative, even favoring that because of the fact that it reduces the need for administrative burden. Actually, that it reduces. Uh, the costly administration that goes into determining people's eligibility. So the more that you have this complex eligibility procedures, the more you have to spend on administration, actually. You have to have you know, lots of workers who, caseworkers who are determining whether or not somebody's eligible that are going through all their records, all of the documents that they produce to determine eligibility. If you simplify eligibility, actually, um, you can reduce some of those administrative costs and uh, save costs that way. So I think there actually is an increasing alignment uh, between people on different sides in terms of at least the cost savings that could come from simplifying those eligibility, which actually the savings from that might uh, be greater than um, whatever you're losing out to in terms of fraud. Well, Professor Fox, really, thank you for joining today. This is a really great informative conversation. Uh, I'm going to let you have the last word. Is there anything else that you want to cover or say before we say goodbye? Yeah, I guess the one thing I will mention is that I recently heard that um, President Biden signed an executive order on transforming federal customer experience and service delivery to rebuild trust in government. So this is an initiative that's explicitly aimed at reducing administrative burden uh, in government and uh, that the idea is that it will help to rebuild some trust in government if we can take some of the administrative burden out of it. Um, so administrative burden, I think, is an issue that's getting attention at, at the highest levels right now. Well, thank you, Professor Fox. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks again to our guest, Professor Ashley Fox, who teaches at the University at Albany's Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy. If you'd like to learn more about rule reductions and social welfare programs, you can find her paper, Administrative Easing, Rule Reduction and Medicaid Enrollment in the Public Administration Review Journal. If you like this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share. It will help others find the podcast and help us deliver the latest in public policy research. All of our episodes are available for free wherever you stream your podcasts. Special thanks to the Rockefeller Institute staff, Joel Torado, Heather Trella, and Laura Schultz for their contributions to this episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Alex Morse. Until next time.
Policy Outsider is presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government, the public policy research arm of the State University of New York. The Institute conducts cutting-edge, nonpartisan public policy research and analysis to inform lasting solutions to the challenges facing New York State and the nation. Learn more at rockinst.org or by following Rockefeller Inst, that's I-N-S-T, on social media. Have a question, comment, or idea? Email us at communications at rock.suny.edu.